You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. To help make sense of these topics, we sit down with thought leaders and do what we do best at the Conference Board, provide trusted insights for what's ahead. I'm Steve Odlin from the Conference Board and the host of this series. And in today's conversation, we're going to discuss the state of the global economy. First, we're going to look at our newly released data on consumer confidence in the United States. Then we're going to dig into the economic outlook for China, Europe, and the U.S. Joining me today is Dana Peterson, the Chief Economist at the Conference Board. Dana, welcome. Hi, Steve. It's always great to be here. So, Dana, your group just released the new U.S. consumer confidence data. Tell us about consumer sentiment in March. Sure. Well, sentiment ticked up a little bit in March, but for the most part, it's been moving sideways. Uh, Confidence uh, was pretty high, certainly before the pandemic, and then it fell off during the pandemic. It recovered a little bit, but then it's, it's kind of sagged. And right now, we're not seeing much improvement in data. So what were the the results? There's two components to the consumer confidence, the current um, outlook and then the, you know, looking forward six months. What, what, how did, how did the two differ? What was a little bit surprising to me was that the present situation ticked downward in the month. And in previous months, consumers had been saying that the present situation was fine. And we thought that was mainly because they were working and they were also seeing increases in wages. But in this report, the present situation was a little bit worse. Uh, Business conditions and also employment conditions uh, were not as favorable as in previous months. But the expectations gauge did tick upward, and that reflected a better outlook for employment and businesses. But consumers were still very concerned about incomes in the future. It's interesting because that's kind of a flip of where we've been in the past few months, where people were a little more uh, optimistic about their current situation and a little concerned about the future. Now it's now you're seeing a little bit of a flip, huh? Yes, but I would I would caveat that by saying that the level of the expectations gauge was still below 80. And it's been below 80 for 12 out of the last 13 months. Anything below 80 means that consumers expect a recession. So even though the monthly number was higher in March relative to February, it's still signaling recession over the next six to 12 months. And did you see any differences demographically? Well, I think the, so folks making more than $50,000 were a little bit more optimistic in the month. Um, And certainly uh, folks who were on the lower end of of the income spectrum were a little less optimistic. Also, uh, folks, I think, who were younger were a little bit more optimistic relative to the the people who were older. So what role do you think the inflation uh, readings are having on consumer confidence? Well, I think inflation plays a a huge role, even though most people are working and those uh, who, especially those who are in industries where their labor shortages have seen improvements in wages, inflation's really eroding uh, a lot of the income that people have been been earning. And indeed, our expectations gauge for inflation at 6.3% is still very elevated. 
And that's really why the Fed continues to work to bring the actual level of inflation downward and also to lower the expectations of inflation. Yeah. And, you know, food and, and uh, gas prices and energy prices continue to be really high. And so that hits the lower socioeconomic groups harder than the, the higher earners, right? Yes, but also rents are are very elevated and they continue to rise. And that's a reflection of what we saw in the housing market. The good news is that home price valuations are falling and so are new rents. And that should start showing up in the inflation data probably in late spring or early summer. So you think that's when the the rents will kind of peak and, uh, and we'll get through it? Well, that's what the data are signaling to us right now. Okay. Um, so what do these data from consumers tell us about, you know, the probability of recession? Well, the data, especially the expectations gauge, like I said, has been it's been hovering uh, over below 80 or just above it for the last 12 out of 13 months. And so consumers continually say that they expect some kind of recession and indeed our own forecast is that there will be a recession this year. Hopefully it will be short and shallow. It may begin in the second quarter of this year and extend through the fourth quarter, and then we'll be out of it beginning of, of 2024. But it's interesting that consumers have been worried about this for over a year, But and CEOs have too. They're, they're, you know, CEOs are telling us exactly what you just said. Yes, uh, so the data are definitely corroborating. and. I think very importantly, these are sentiment gauges. This is how people, uh, consumers and CEOs feel. But when we look at the hard data, like the leading economic index, it continues to point to recession starting roughly about now. About now, yeah. So what do the the consumer confidence numbers tell us about their plans for buying goods and services? Well, with respect to goods, it's still signaling that consumers are pulling back on buying durable goods, big ticket items that need to be financed or things that they probably already purchased. Like you don't need five cars or 10 refrigerators. And those are items that consumers definitely purchased during the pandemic um, because they were stuck at home and they were focused on making home more comfortable. And also many people bought homes. And when you buy a new home, you often buy appliances and and cars and things like that. So it's not surprising that the buying plans for those big ticket items, as well as housing, are not robust. What was interesting, though, is we asked a special question about services. And we saw some pretty interesting answers there. Uh, Consumers are still buying services, but they're pulling back on the highly discretionary services, like going to the movies or going to a hotel or restaurant. But they are spending more on services that they probably need, such as healthcare and, and financial services. And they're also spending more on cheaper forms of entertainment. So for example, streaming over movies. And um, I guess this is a good news, good news for anyone who's a pet lover. People are still spending money on pet care. <laughs> well, you know, during the uh, the pandemic and, and the lockdowns, the pet ownership, pet population just soared. So it's uh, it, it's been really interesting. And that that continues here. What do you think is causing this? So, you know, so it's so it's clear that inflation's driving a, a lot of this sentiment and people are working their way through it. And, and we're not finished with it, as you said, because of certainly because of rents and but also food and fuel. What 
you know, what, what do you think is the core driver today of U.S. inflation? You know, we started with shortages and supply chain and, you know, all of that stuff. What is it today? Well, it's it's three things, really. So the first is external. Food prices are still very elevated. Um, gasoline prices have come off pretty dramatically, even though uh, it's still probably higher than what we'd like. But it's really food. Uh, and food prices are being driven by things like floods and droughts and also the war in Ukraine, which is putting restrictions on the production and exports of grains. And so that affects global food prices, which impacts folks at home and here in, in the U.S. So that's one aspect. Another aspect, as we talked about, is uh, the rental portion of inflation. And that's a huge aspect of most inflation gauges. And again, that reflects spikes in home prices that we saw in the past. And usually it takes about a year and a half for whatever activity happened in the housing market to show up in rents. So the good news is that home price valuations have been slowing and in some cases have fallen, and that should show up in the rents. But the third piece of the puzzle is services. Consumers are buying services more than they're buying goods. Uh, one, because uh, they're, they're back out there. They're uh, able to engage in in-person services. Now the lockdowns and the pandemic is mainly behind us, but you have labor shortages in many of those industries that people are desiring. So like air travel, hotels, restaurants, even healthcare, uh, you're seeing severe labor shortages that are pushing up wages and businesses. When we ask them, what are you doing to manage higher input costs in our CEO confidence survey for the U.S.? The first thing they say is pass it on to the customer. And so that's showing up in the consumer inflation gauges. So it's a it's it's a matter of demand where consumers want to buy services, but also because there's just not enough people working in those services sectors. So those are the three areas where we're seeing inflation be quite sticky and uncooperative. So what are the, what what is the current conference board projection for inflation? What what's going to happen here over the course of 23 and 24? Sure. So right now inflation, if we look at uh, the personal consumption expenditure deflator, which is the gauge, it's it's essentially the price of consumer goods and services and the GDP data. And that's what the Fed pays attention to. And it's still very, very elevated right now in, five, in the 5% range. We think by the end of this year, we'll probably be around 3% and then not return to the Fed's 2% target until the end of next year. So that that's a very long time um, for inflation to be above the target. But again, we really need to see those rents come off and we need relief on food. And certainly if the U.S. economy goes into recession, most likely people will pull back on services um, as they've already done in terms of purchasing goods. But so, so we're sitting closer to 6% currently, and you're saying by the end of 23, it should be close to 3%. So that's a pretty material move. Well, 6%, I think, is where the CPI is. Yeah. So the the personal consumption expenditure deflator is more like five, five-ish, <laughs> five and five and a half. And so getting down to 3% is a little less dramatic, but it's still... That's still pretty uh, material. And a, a lot of the movement is going to come from that rental component. So the CPI will will probably be a little higher than three then. Um, yes. You know, which is what consumers experience. And uh, um, so that's going to take a little bit longer. So what do you think the Fed 
we'll do here. How many more interest rate hikes, how much in total are you projecting? Sure, we project two more interest rate hikes in May and in June, which which I think makes sense given the fact that inflation has been sticky and the Fed does want to address inflation expectations, which are again are just too high. But after the the last meeting, the last Federal Reserve FOMC meeting, which was last week, um, the Fed signaled that they have one more interest rate hike to go. And they also suggested that uh, even that may remain in question given the banking crisis and that financial conditions may tighten more than what's showing up in the hard data that we see. And that's essentially because banks may be concerned about their deposits and so they'll be less likely to lend money to consumers and businesses. Now, I would suggest that this is more material for businesses than it is for consumers because consumers have already pulled back on borrowing. And we're seeing that in the fact that uh, not only are they saying it, but they're also actively buying fewer cars and buying less furniture and items that you would normally finance as well as people are buying fewer homes, which also the majority of people finance. But it is a big deal for businesses that uh, need short-term funding or they may need income for bigger investment projects. So I would imagine that's going to be uh, the, the pullback in lending from banks is going to affect businesses much more significantly than consumers at this point. Okay, so the Fed signaling one more, you're sig- you're projecting two more, I assume 25 basis points. So, yes. you know, another another maybe 50, but depending on what happens, you know, whether we're through the banking situation or not, you know, affects your projection. That's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, so I I'm I'm we're still comfortable with two, but two one it's fungible at this point. Okay. The, the the real point is that the Fed has raised interest rates by 500 basis points within a year, and that is uncommon. Typically, it takes two years or more before the Fed raises interest rates and gets anywhere close to its terminal rate. Anything else on U.S. consumer confidence you want to share? Well, I think you know key things in terms of either lifting or further dampening consumer confidence will be whether or not the U.S. goes into recession, and also whether or not the labor market worsens more than we anticipate. Again, we anticipate that the the unemployment rate may rise to 4.4% from 3.6% right now, but even 4.4% is quite low compared to uh, the pandemic where the unemployment rate jumped to 13.5%, and during the Great Recession when the unemployment Uh, rose to 10%. And you saw millions upon millions of people losing their jobs. But still in all, uh, folks will see on the six o'clock news that there are layoffs, and they may start to panic and they may pull back more on their consumption, even though the likelihood of they themselves getting fired or let go is probably pretty low. So I think that's going to be something we need to watch in terms of how labor market dynamics impact the psyches of consumers. Yeah. And, you know, whether the labor shortage is ameliorated and then the effect on wages, which then, you know, hit inflation. So all of this is really interwoven into one fabric. Yes. But we think labor shortages are probably here to stay. And indeed, when you see the most acute labor shortages, uh, the worst it's in healthcare. And regardless of the economy, you're 
people always need health care. So it's not clear that all the labor shortages will be resolved. They may ease a little bit, but we're still looking at issues. And certainly after this, what we expect will be a pretty brief recession, labor shortages are just going to come roaring back into the picture because we have an aging population. We've been talking about the U.S. consumer confidence data. We're going to take a short break and come back with the global economic update. What does the future of work mean for your employees? How will your company navigate ESG? Will there be a global recession? At the Conference Board, our experts translate the latest research and economic analysis into insights and real-time problem solving for your organization. Membership at the Conference Board provides your team with an assortment of knowledge from economics, marketing and communications, ESG, public policy, and human capital. As a member, you'll have access to our center experts, member-exclusive events, data and benchmarking tools, and peer sharing that will help you understand the present and shape the future. Consider becoming a Conference Board member today by visiting www.conference-board.org. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your host, Steve Odlin from the Conference Board, and I'm joined today by Dana Peterson, the Chief Economist at the conference board. Okay, Dana, let's uh, let's talk in, about the uh, the global economic update. Your team does forecasting for the economies around the world. It's it's uh, and it's an award winning team and an award winning forecast. Uh, your accuracy has been recognized by many. Let's start with China, which now is the second largest economy in the world. What's the China outlook? Yes, we anticipate that China is going to see faster growth this year, roughly 5% compared to 3% last year. What's two things are going to drive that improvement? And the first is some of it's mechanical, where you're coming from a very low base of growth. And so when you come back, then you see the really big pop in the growth rate. But really, it's also going to be consumers uh, returning to purchasing services in China, just like we've seen that pattern in other economies that reopen after pandemic lockdowns. Um, but the thing is that that 5% growth rate is, is, is not as strong as you would imagine for China. China's used to eight or nine or even double digit growth rates. And that's because there are a number of factors that are going to be, prove to be headwinds uh, over the course of this year. China is the largest country by population with what about a billion four hundred million people so it's a big domestic market and you know it's it's emerging or developing so you have people coming up into the middle class so so you have that growth but then you have also the production for export growth it tends you know that's the world supply chain source right now what's the balance in the chinese economy between the domestic market and the export market well, China's export market is still pretty huge. And indeed, when we think about headwinds to growth, that's going to be a major headwind. China's two biggest trading partners are the US and Europe. And both the US and Europe are going to be experiencing slower growth this year. And so that means China's exports are not going to be as strong. And then we think about other headwinds to growth. They revolve around the consumer and also the housing market. So China's housing market has been collapsing and there's no end in sight. And so that's been a real drain on revenues for provincial governments um, who were used to receiving taxes uh, and rev tax revenues from the land sales 
among dealers. And then because the housing market continues to wane, that's been a major hit to wealth for consumers in China. So while consumers are right now going out and spending a little bit more on services, it's going to be capped by the fact that they've lost a ton of wealth. And so there's a lot of precautionary savings going on that's going to limit the, the extent to which China grows. Well, and you have all the geopolitical issues too. And, you know, firms, multinationals trying to relocate their supply chains, although that's going to be a decades long process, but, uh, but you will have some de-emphasis there. So, you, you know, they've, there's a number of moving parts here for China. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Europe, what's the outlook for Europe? Well, we had been forecasting recession for Europe, but it looks like the worst of it was in the fourth quarter and that some economies uh, will probably go into recession like Germany and the UK and certainly the Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia will remain in recession. But that's probably about it. The euro area is most likely going to experience pretty flat growth this year uh, as a as a block uh, and still ex have very elevated inflation. So that's that's more or less a stagflationary scenario, but, you know, short run because usually people think of stagflation as a multi-year event, but still in all, we're looking at flat growth, elevated inflation uh, for the balance of this year. And the ECB may uh, raise rates a few more times over the course of, of this year. You know, I wonder sometimes whether it'd be better just to take the recession, you know, rip the Band-Aid off, you know, take the pain and then get through it and to back to growth versus the stagflation where it just feels like, you're mired down in it and you can't get through it. Well, the, the issue is that the, the high inflation is due to the fact that you have a war going on and uh, Western economies impose sanctions on Russia. And as a consequence, Russia retaliated by yeah. restricting energy supplies. And so that forced inflation much higher. And so it affects overall inflation, but it also affects core inflation because things like food and energy feed into uh, items that that aren't necessarily food or energy, but feed into transportation costs for those uh, for those goods and services uh, for goods and certainly for services operation costs. And so that's what's going on. And, and the growth is really the weak growth is a reflection of the shock of the war and and the cost of living crisis by uh, Russia retaliating. So that's that's really what's going on here. You know, at the same time, you have to overlay the global desire to cut carbon and the carbon-free 2050 and the whole energy uh, transition, which certainly Europe uh, and the U.S. are trying to uh, trying to accomplish. But that's creating some energy shortages and certainly some inflation on that side as well. Yes, that is. But I, I would suggest that you know. During the, the worst of the cost of living crisis, Europe found other avenues for importing energy from the U.S. and from MENA, energy meaning uh, natural gas. So if this crisis in the short run, um, you, you didn't see much movement in terms of renewables, but it did also encourage Europe to become more uh, aggressive, if you will, in terms of decarbon decarbonization because of its reliance on, on Russia and wanting to be free of that reliance. So what are the upsides and downside risks for Europe? Well, I think uh, the, 
the main downside risk for Europe is worsening of this war, where it, it metastasizes and, and includes NATO economies, including the U.S., and it becomes a broader conflict. I think that's that's probably the biggest downside risk. Another downside risk is that there's no relief on inflation, despite what the Bank of England and the ECB do in terms of lowering inflation. Uh, key upside risks are th just the resiliency. There are a number of economies that have done surprisingly well over the last year, and uh, they're probably also less linked to manufacturing, which has been very weak in Europe. And then, of course, a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine would be a major upside uh, for the global economy, uh, clearly ending the humanitarian crisis. And, you know, economically speaking, there's going to be a pretty sizable investment. There has to be in, in restoring Ukraine uh, in terms of rebuilding infrastructure and repatriating people that have fled. Yeah, and you know, especially if they can get uh, supply chains back to normal and food supplies back to normal. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's turn to the U.S. Going back to the U.S., we talked about consumer confidence in the first half of our discussion. We talked a little bit about the Fed and what's going on. Any other surprises or forecasts for the from the Fed that uh, that you're aware of? Well, one thing that was surprising to me was the treatment of the balance sheet. I thought the Fed might pause or reduce the size of the runoff of its balance sheet. And the Fed didn't do that. And I think what the Fed is trying to say is that, you know, it's one entity, but it has several pockets, different pockets. And from one pocket, it can address credit by withdrawing liquidity for certain types of assets. But on in another pocket, it can issue liquidity to banks who need the who need the help uh, it's such that they don't become insolvent. So I think that was that was interesting. Also the slight dovishness when it came to thinking about inflation where the Fed uh, you know a couple of weeks ago was saying was is signaling maybe we need another 50 basis point hike or maybe we need three or four interest rate hikes, 25 basis point interest rate hikes and then pulled back on that and said, look, this banking crisis delivers a lot of uncertainty. We don't know how much it's going to tighten financial conditions. And some of that tightening might be the equivalent of an interest rate hike of 25 basis points. So the Fed pulled back a little bit about on that. But for the most part, the Fed is still committed to tackling inflation. It's still committed to dialing down the size of its balance sheet. But it's also very committed to maintaining financial stability and the health of banks in the U.S. Well, you know... <laughs> It's it's interesting because the the interest rate the discount rate hikes have impacted you know the interest rates on bonds which has made the bonds that were yielding less that much less valuable and so banks you know part of the problem with Silicon Valley Bank and others is that they've had to do either a formal or an informal mark to market on these assets and you know their balance sheets are actually smaller and you know if you're loaning say ten to one on on against assets. And that one is shrunk, you know, that has a multiplier effect, you know, in, in the liquidity in the marketplace. So the question is, you know, it's an unknowable question really at this point, but, but you know, what are there any issues left to fall in the banking sector? How much liquidity is coming out? And therefore, then what, what are the effect on corporate actions? So all of this is swirling with the Fed. Well, well two things. First of all, banks need to have proper risk management. So you need to have a playbook when interest rates are low and also when they're high. And I think that was the problem with 
these entities uh, that failed and others that are getting into a bit of trouble is because they didn't plan for elevated interest rates. And that's just that's just basic <laughs> what you know what what we've been saying in our in our writing that's that's a key part of management of risk management yeah it's banking 101 really you you said it animals said it but <laughs> you said it and so that's that was part of the problem the other thing is that for lending or rather borrowing these banks go to the fed to borrow they are getting a hundred cents on the dollar for whatever assets they're putting up in terms of the money that the Fed is lending. So um, it's not the case that they're getting hit from that angle. Yeah, I guess that's a tax a taxpayer, that moral hazard on the taxpayer because it's just getting, you know, that 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 delta between current and well, it it could be if they don't make good on their loans. Yeah. So that's 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 something that I'm very concerned about. And certainly we've been writing about that. We've or we've already written about that issue. But it's not clear if there are any more shoes to fall, but I think the good news is, that, and I've been looking at the data, is that when we look at bond market volatility, that's come off from the heights that we saw during the banking crisis. Um, yes, uh, there are institutions that are are borrowing from the FDIC, uh, they're borrowing from the Fed, but that's the point. We want them to have a place to go such that it doesn't cause any more issues in financial markets. And we've seen, even though banking stocks are down, we've seen a bit of a pickup in overall stock market indexes. So I think that, you know, the important thing is that uh, banks, that, you know, the federal government, the Fed have worked very hard to reassure everyday Americans that the banking system is safe. And in particular, they're okay, right? Their their assets are, their, their deposits are insured up to $250,000. And most people uh, that may be impacted are, they've been made whole. They're moving their money where, to larger banks, which concerns me a bit. Are we creating super SIFIs, as I call them? Yeah, exactly. But these larger banks are subject to a much strict, more stringent leg, regulatory environment. And the types of loans and products that they have are more plain vanilla and less exotic. And to that extent, they are stronger. But there could still be some shoes that drop and we'll just have to keep watching. And, you know, that's I think that's the core of your downside risk at this point, because um, it looks like recession's almost upon us. It should be short and shallow. The Fed's almost to the where, you know, their their terminal rate. So it's it feels like we're we're just about there. And this is sort of the one gray swan that's hanging out there. Well, it's it's not really a. Uh... I guess it's not really Grace Swan anymore because uh, <laughs> it's it's just a regular risk, a regular downside risk, oh, right? All so. right, all right. Still feels like a Grace Swan to me because you don't know what you don't know out there. Well, anyway, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Dana Peterson, thanks for being with us today. Sure, thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening in to CEO Perspectives. Every week, I'll be joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. We'll cover the leading topics in economics, geopolitics, public policy, and more. Please share CEO perspectives with your colleagues, with your friends, with your everybody, your family. I'm Steve Odlin, and this series has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.